Hi all, welcome back to Tangents on Cracked Spines with your host, Frankie. For those who want to interact outside of uh, Apple podcast reviews, uh, you can now have a Facebook page called Tangents on Cracked Spines Book Club on Facebook. So if you're interested, interact with us there. You can give me suggestions or talk about the books we're reading or uh, even give me suggestions for new books. Uh, right now I am only doing books in the public domain because otherwise I have to pay money for the rights. Uh, so if you want me to read books aloud that aren't in the public domain, maybe give me a tip on Anchor. On Anchor. But let us begin. Chapter 3. From this day, natural philosophy, and particularly chemistry, in the most comprehensive sense of the term, became nearly my sole occupation. I read with ardor those works, so full of genius and discrimination, with modern inquirers, have written on these subjects. I attended the lectures and cultivated the acquaintance of the men of science of the university, and I found even in M. Kremp a great deal of sound sense and real information, combined, it is true, with a repulsive physiognomy and manners, but not on that account the less valuable. In M. Waldman I found a true friend. His gentleness was never tinged by dogmatism, and his instructions were given with an air of frankness and good nature that banished every idea of pedantry. It was perhaps the amiable character of this man that inclined me more to that branch of natural philosophy which he professed than an intrinsic love for the science itself. But this state of mind had place only in the first steps towards knowledge. The more fully I entered into the science, the more exclusively I pursued it for its own sake. That application, which at first had been a matter of duty and resolution, now becomes so ardent and eager that the stars often disappeared in the light of morning whilst I was yet engaged in my laboratory. As I applied so closely, it may be easily conceived that I improved rapidly. My ardor was indeed the astonishment of the students, and my proficiency that of the masters. Professor Kremp often asked me, with a sly smile, how Cornelius Agrippa went on, whilst M. Waldman expressed the most heartfelt exultation in my progress. Two years passed in this manner, during which I paid no visit to Geneva, but was engaged, heart and soul, in the pursuit of some discoveries which I hoped to make. None but those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science. I mean, I am a science major. And modern college, it's your life because you're in all the bloody labs. Some of them more bloody than others, literally. All right. In other studies, you... Go as far as others have gone before you, and there is nothing more to know. But in a scientific pursuit, there is a continual food for discovery and wonder. 
written by the mother of science fiction. While this is technically considered a part of the horror genre, it is also one of the first, like, science fiction novels. So obviously you can go further in literature, too. A mind of moderate capacity which closely pursues one study must infallibly arrive at a great proficiency in that study, and I, who continually sought the attainment of one object of pursuit and was solely wrapped up in this, improved so rapidly that, at the end of two years, I made some discoveries in the improvement of some chemical instruments, which procured me great esteem and admiration at the university. When I had arrived at this point, and had become come as well acquainted with the theory and practice of natural philosophy as depended on the lessons of any of the professors at Ingolstadt, my residence there being no longer conducive to my improvements, I thought of returning to my friends and my native town when an incident happened that protracted my stay. One of the phenomena which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed, any animal endued with life. Whence, I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? It was a bold question, and one which has ever been considered a mystery. Yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted, if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? I resolved these circumstances in my mind, and determined thenceforth to apply myself more particularly to those branches of natural philosophy which related to physiology. Unless I had been animated by the an almost supernatural enthusiasm, my application to this study would have been irksome, and almost intolerable. To examine the causes of life, we must first have recourse to death. I became acquainted with the science of anatomy, but this was not sufficient. I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not ever remember to have trembled at a tale of superstition, or to have feared the apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life which, from being the seed of beauty and strength, had become food for the worm. The worms go in, the worms go out, na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Now I was led to examine the cause and progress of this decay, and forced to spend days and nights in vaults and charnel-houses. My attention was fixed upon every object, the most insupportable to the delicacy of the human feelings. I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted. I beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life. I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain. I paused examining and analyzing all the minutiae of causation as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous, yet so simple, that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which I, it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries towards the same science, 
that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. Dun dun dun! Remember, I am not recording the vision of a madman. The sun does not more certainly shine in the heavens than that which I now affirm is true. Some miracle might have produced it, yet the stages of the discovery were distinct and probable. After days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life. Nay, more, I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. I should probably start putting warnings at the beginning of these episodes because Frankenstein is a horror genre. He does talk about some things that may not be appropriate for all audiences. I forget to do this because who in the English-speaking language has not heard of Frankenstein, a.k.a. the modern Prometheus? But now, I do indeed need to say, for those weak of heart or who are not uh, of an appropriate age to work, uh, listen to this, it does get into the IT'S ALIVE part of the story. Which does have violence and death and other things. The astonishment which I had at first experienced on this discovery soon gave place to delight and rapture. After so much time spent in painful labor, to arrive at once at the summit of my desires was the most gratifying consummation of my toils. But this discovery was so great and overwhelming that all the steps by which I had been progressively led to it were obliterated. That's not science, honey. You need to record it for it to be science. Otherwise, you're just a mad engineer. And I beheld only the result. What had been the study and desire of the wisest men since the creation of the world was now within my grasp. Not that, like a magic scene, it all opened upon me at once. The information I had obtained was of a nature rather to direct my endeavors so soon as I should point them towards the object of my search than to exhibit that object already accomplished. I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead and found a passage to life, aided only by one glimmering and seemingly ineffectual light. I don't know what that reference is. I see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express, my friend, that you expect to be informed of the secret with which I am acquainted. That cannot be. Listen patiently until the end of my story, and you will easily perceive why I am reserved upon that subject. I will not lead you on, unguarded and ardent, as I then was, to your destruction and infallible mis misery. Learn from me, if not by my precepts, at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his na nature will allow. 
when I found so astonishing a power placed within my hands, I hesitated a long time concerning the manner in which I should employ it. Although I possessed the capacity of bestowing animation, yet to prepare a frame for the reception of it, with all its intricacies and fibers, muscles and veins, still remained a work of inconceivable difficulty and labor. I doubted at first whether I should attempt the creation of a being like myself or one of simpler organization. But my imagination was too much exalted by my first success to permit me to doubt of my ability to give life to an animal as complex and wonderful as man. Now, mind you, they don't tell you what matter he uh, gave life to first. I'm, I'm a little curious about that. The materials at present within my command hardly appeared adequate to so arduous an undertaking, but I doubted not that I should ultimately succeed. I prepared myself for a multitude of reverses. My operations might be incessantly baffled, and at last my work be imperfect. Yet, when I considered the improvement which every day takes place in science and mechanics, I was encouraged to hope my present attempts would at least lay the foundations of future success. Nor could I consider the magnitude and complexity of my plan as any argument of its impracticability. It was with these feelings that I began the creation of a human being. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, contrary to my first intention, to make the being of a gigantic stature, that is to say, about eight feet in height and proportionally large. After having formed this determination, and having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. And again, they don't actually say that he was made of other uh, human beings in grave robbing. They leave that to your imagination. Also, with the exception of, like, one Frankenstein movie, the one that came, has come closest in my thought process of uh, going with the book is Young Frankenstein. And that's a comedy. No one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onwards like a hurricane and the first enthusiasm of success. Life and death appeared to me ideal bounds which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. God complex much? No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. Which only makes me go, maybe she did not actually think of using human parts. That's just the only thing we can think of to make another human with. Pursuing these reflections, I thought that if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might, in process of time, although I now found it impossible, renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. 
These thoughts supported my spirits, while I pursued my undertaking with unremitting ardor. My cheek had grown pale with study, and my person had become emaciated with confinement. Sometimes, on the very brink of certainty, I failed. Yet still I clung to the hope which the next day or the next hour might realize. One secret which I alone possessed was the hope of which I had dedicated myself. And the moon gazed on my midnight labors, while with unrelaxed and breathless eagerness I pursued nature to her hiding places. Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil, as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave, or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay? Oh dear. My limbs now tremble, and my eyes swim with the remembrance, but then a re but then a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seemed to have lost all soul or sensation, but for this one pursuit, it was indeed but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness so soon as the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. I collected bones from channel houses and disturbed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame. In a solitary chamber, or rather a cell, at the top of the house and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase, I kept my workshop of filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets and attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials. Ooh. And often did my human nature turn with a loathing from my occupation, while still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased. I brought my work near to conclusion. The summer months passed while I was thus engaged, heart and soul, in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest or the vines yield a more luxuriant vintage. But my, my, my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature, and the same feelings which made me neglect the scenes around me caused me also to forget those friends who were so many miles absent and whom I had not seen for so long a time. I knew my science disquieted them, and I well remembered the words of my father. I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you will think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you. You must pardon me if I regard any interruption in your correspondence as a proof that your other duties are equally neglected. I knew well, therefore, what would be my father's feelings, but I could not tear my thoughts from my employment, loathsome in itself, but which had taken an irresistible hold of my imagination. I wished, as it were, to procrastinate all that related to my feelings of affection until the great object which swallowed up every habit of my nature should be completed. I then thought that my father would be unjust if he ascribed my neglect to vice or faultness on my part, but I am now convinced that he was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame. A human being in perfection ought always 
to preserve a calm and peaceful mind and never to allow passion or a transitory desire to disturb his tranquility. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful. That is to say, not befitting the human mind. If this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquility of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved, Caesar would have been spared his country, America would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru had not been destroyed. But I forget that I am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale, and your looks remind me to proceed. My father made no reproach in his letters, and only took notice of my silence by inquiring into my occupations more particularly than before. Winter, spring, and summer passed away during my labors, but I did not watch the blossom or the expanding leaves, sights which before always yielded me supreme delight. So deeply was I engrossed in my occupation. The leaves of that year had withered before my work drew near to a close, and now every day showed me more plainly how well I had succeeded. But my enthusiasm was checked by my anxiety, and I appeared rather like one doomed by slavery to toil in the mines or any other unwholesome trade than an artist occupied by his favorite employment. Every night I was oppressed by a slow fever, and I became nervous to a most painful degree, a disease that I regretted the more because I had hitherto enjoyed most excellent health, and had always boasted of the firmness of my nerves. But I believed that exercise and amusement would soon drive away such symptoms, and I promised myself both of these when my creation should be complete." Chapter 4 It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form. His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful! Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness but these luxuries only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, 
his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, lassitude succeeded to the tumult I had before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. I slept indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw Elizabeth in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her, but as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of the flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead, my teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed, when, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demonical corpse to which I had so miserably given life. Ah, oh, no mortal could support the horror of that countenance. A mummy, again endued with animation, could not be so hideous as that wretch. I had gazed on him while unfinished, he was ugly then, but when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. I passed the night wretchedly. Sometimes my pulse beat so quickly and hardly that I felt the palpitation of every artery. At others, I nearly sank to the ground through languor and extreme weakness. Mingled with this horror, I felt the bitterness of disappointment. Dreams that had been my food and pleasant rest for so long a space were now become a hell to me. And the change was so rapid, the overthrow so complete. Morning, dismal and wet, at length dawned and discovered to my sleepless and aching eyes the church of Ingolstadt, its white steeple and clock, 
which indicated the sixth hour. The porter opened the gates of the court, which had that night been my asylum, and I issued into the streets, pacing them with quick steps, as if I sought to avoid the wretch whom I feared every turning of the street would present to my view. I did not dare return to the apartment which I inhabited, but felt impelled to hurry on, although wetted by the rain which poured from a black and comfortless sky. I continued walking in this manner for some time, endeavoring my bodily exercise to ease the load that weighed upon my mind. I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was or what I was doing. My heart palpitated in the sickness of fear, and I hurried on with irregular steps and not daring to look about me, like one who, on a lonely road, doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Continuing thus, I came at length opposite to an inn, at which the various diligences and carriages usually stopped. Here I paused, I knew not why, but I remained some minutes with my eyes fixed on a coach that was coming towards me from the other end of the street. As it drew nearer, I observed that it was the Swiss diligence. It stopped just where I was standing, and, on the door being opened, I perceived Henry Clerval, who, on seeing me, instantly sprung out. "'My dear Frankenstein!' he exclaimed. "'How glad am I to see you! How fortunate that you should be here at the very moment of my alighting!' Nothing could equal my delight on seeing Clerval. His presence brought back to my thoughts my father, Elizabeth, and all those scenes of home so dear to my recollection, or the fact that he has two other brothers.' I grasped his hand and in a moment forgot my horror and misfortune. Self-inflicted, honey. I felt suddenly, and for the first time during many months, calm and serene joy. I welcomed my friend, therefore, in the most cordial manner, and we walked towards my college. Clairville continued talking for some time about our mutual friends and his own good fortune in being permitted to come to Ingolstadt. You may easily believe, said he, how great was the difficulty to persuade my father that it was not absolutely necessary for a merchant not to understand anything except bookkeeping, and indeed I believe I left him incredulous to the last, for his constant answer to my unwearied entreaties was the same as that of the Dutch schoolmaster and the vicar of Wakefield. I have ten thousand florins a year without Greek, I eat heartily without Greek. But his affection for me at length overcame his dislike of learning, and he has permitted me to undertake a voyage of discovery to the land of knowledge. It gives me the greatest delight to see you. To, but tell me, how left you my father, brothers, and Elizabeth? Very well, and very happy only a little uneasy, that they hear from you so seldom. By the by, I mean to lecture you a little upon their account myself. But my dear Frankenstein, continued he, stopping short, 
and gazing full in my face. I did not before remark how very ill you appear, so thin and pale. You look as if you had been what if you'd been watching for several nights. You have guessed right. I have lately been so deeply engaged in one occupation that I have not allowed myself sufficient rest, as you see, but I hope, I sincerely hope, that all these employments are now at an end and that I am at length free. I trembled excessively. I could not endure to think of and far less to allude to the occurrences of the preceding night. I walked with a quick pace and we soon arrived at my college. I then reflected, and the thought made me shiver, that the creature whom I had left in my apartment might still be there, alive and walking about. I dreaded to behold this monster, but I feared still more that Henry should see him. Entreating him, therefore, to remain a few minutes at the bottom of the stairs, I darted up towards my own room. My hand was already on the lock of the door before I recollected myself. I then paused, and a cold shivering came through over me. I threw the door forcibly open, as children are accustomed to do when they expect a specter to stand in waiting for them on the other side. But nothing appeared. I stepped fearfully in. The apartment was empty, and my bedroom was also freed from its hideous guest. I could hardly believe that so great a good fortune could have befallen me. But when I became assured that my enemy had indeed fled, I clapped my hands for joy and ran down to Clairval. We ascended into my room, and the servant presently brought breakfast. But I was unable to contain myself. It was not joy only that possessed me. I felt my flesh tingle with excess of sensitiveness sensitiveness, and my pulse beat rapidly. I was unable to remain for a single instant in the same place. I jumped over the chairs, clapped my hands, and laughed out loud. Clairvel at first attributed my unusual spirits to joy on his arrival, but when he observed me more attentively, he saw a wildness in my eyes for which he could not account, and my loud, unrestrained, heartless laughter frightened and astonished him. "'My dear Victor,' cried he, "'what, for God's sake, is the matter? "'Do not laugh in that manner. "'How ill you are! "'What is the cause of all of this?' "'Do not ask me,' cried I, "'putting my hands before my eyes, "'for I thought I saw the dreaded specter glide into the room. "'He can tell! "'Oh, save me! "'Save me!' "'I imagined that the monster seized me, struggling furiously, and fell down in a fit. Poor Clerval, what must have been his feelings? A meeting which he anticipated with such joy, so strangely turned to bitterness. But I was not the witness of his grief, for I was lifeless, and did not recover my senses for a long, long time. This was the commencement of a nervous fever, which confined me for several months. During all that time, Henry was my only nurse. I afterwards learned that, knowing my father's advanced age and unfitness for so long a journey, and how wretchedness my sickness would make 
Elizabeth, he spared them the grief by concealing the extent of my disorder. He knew that I could not have a more kind and attentive nurse than himself. Well, other than, you know, Elizabeth. And firm in the hope he felt of my recovery, he did not doubt that, instead of doing harm, he performed the kindest action he could towards them. But I was in reality very ill, and surely nothing but the unbounded and unremitted attentions of my friend could have restored me to life. The form of the monster of on whom I had bestowed existence was forever before my eyes, and I raved incessantly concerning him. Doubtless my words surprised Henry. He at first believed them to be the wanderings of my disturbed imagination, but the pertinency with which I continually recurred to the same subject persuaded him that my disorder indeed owed its origin to some uncommon and terrible event. By very slow degrees, and with frequent relapses that alarmed and grieved my friend, I recovered. I remember the first time I became capable of observing outward objects with any kind of pleasure. I perceived that the fallen leaves had disappeared, and that the young buds were shooting forth from the trees that shaded my window. It was a divine spring, and the season contributed greatly to my convalescence. I felt also sentiments of joy and affection revive in my bosom. My gloom disappeared, and in a short time I became as cheerful as before I was attacked by the fatal passion. "'Dearest Clerval,' I exclaimed I, "'how kind and how very good you are to me! This whole winter, instead of being spent in study as you promised yourself, has been consumed in my sick room. How shall I ever repay you?' I feel the greatest remorse for the disappointment of which I have been the occasion, but you will forgive me. That's not a question. You will repay me entirely if you do not de discompose yourself, but get well as fast as you can, and since you appear in such good spirits, I may speak to you on one subject, may I not? I trembled. One subject? What could it be? Could he allude to an object on whom I dared not even think? Compose yourself, said Clerval, who observed my change of color. I will not mention it if it agitates you, but your father and cousin would be very happy if they received a letter from you in your own hand. They hardly know how ill you have been and are uneasy at your long silence. Is that all, my dear Henry? How could you suppose that my first thought would not fly towards those dear, dear friends whom I love, and who are so deserving of my love? Maybe because you've been such a crap pen pal for the past two years. <coughs> Pardon. If this is your present temper, my dear friend, you will perhaps be glad to see a letter that has been lying here some days for you. It is from your cousin, I believe. And with that, I leave you be until next time. Two chapters at a time, my friends. This will be a long season. I hope you are enjoying Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And let me know, either on the Facebook page or in reviews, 
Do you think I should be doing synopses before I start a new episode? Or do you think you remember this one well enough? We shall see, and I look forward to hearing from you. Blessed be.